0: a little uh, intimidating coming up here after last week. I so thoroughly enjoyed the message last week, the passage where John, the writer of the gospel, we're looking at. uh, does such a skillful job of uh, contrasting the personalities of of Jesus and of Peter. John seems to be a master at really developing the characters, the personalities of the people he describes and the events he describes. Saw that back in the First chapter with John the Baptist, and uh, then with Philip and Nathaniel, and chapter three with Nicodemus, and chapter four is one of my favorite chapters. It, uh, John really brings alive for us the Samaritan woman at the well, and we can even feel what she feels. We can really see who she is. John really apparently loves people, and when he describes incidents, he focuses in on the people. The passage we're going to be looking at this morning, it's in John 18, the trial of Jesus before Pilate. John leaves out an awful lot of the details. If you really want to know what happened, read Luke. Luke will tell you all the details. Luke will tell you who, who said what, when, where they took Jesus, where they brought him back. John leaves it all out because he wants to focus on the character of our Lord and on the, the personality of Pilate. So we get in there, we see the sharp relief between Pilate and Jesus. And even though it is Jesus who is on trial, it starts to look like Pilate is the one on trial. In fact, the whole religious and political system seems to be on trial. Let's just start reading verse 28 of John 18. They, that is the priests, they led Jesus therefore from Caiaphas to the praetorium. And it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Pilate therefore went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Pilate therefore said to them, Well, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law then. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. In order that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. John doesn't even mention the uh, trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, before the whole Sanhedrin, which was the governing body of Israel. He just says that it happened. Then he jumps to the priest dragging Jesus before Pilate. He says it was early, uh, probably just after sunrise. You see, it was not legal for a Jewish court to sentence someone to death at night. And they had just tried Jesus the night before, before the Sanhedrin. So they probably waited around until the first rays of the sun came up, rubber stamped their decision, uh, put down the, the death sentence, and rushed him off to Pilate to get his rubber stamp. So they get on with the execution. They wanted to do it early in the morning before crowds could gather, before anything could happen to get in the way this time. They wanted their lynching. They come up to, to the, uh, the governor's palace, the praetorium, but they refuse to go in. So it says because they don't want to be defiled, because they don't want to miss out on the seven days of feasting that are associated with the Passover. See, a, a proper Jew could not even go into the house of a Gentile because the Gentiles were not at all concerned with cleanliness laws. They, they killed their food improperly. They, uh, they, they didn't wash themselves in exactly the right way or wash their household utensils. And so all of these things were defiled. And anything that touches something that's defiled becomes defiled. So it was safe for a Jew to assume that absolutely everything in a Gentile house is defiled. So these guys wouldn't go in because they didn't want to be contaminated. You see the irony that John sees here? These men are worried about the minutest detail of ritual and law. But they're trying to murder a man they know to be innocent. They're rotten, putrid on the inside. But they're worried about their, their feet brushing against a speck of contaminated dust so that they become ritually impure. Now, this is the great danger of religion. Formality, a ritual, tradition, masking what's really going on inside our hearts—the envy, and the, the resentment, and the greed, the deception, or maybe even just the, the spiritual vacuum that exists in there—can all be covered up by doing the right things and the religious things. We can go to church, we can be baptized, we can take communion, even teach a Sunday school class, go to growth group, Bible study and still never come to the point where our hearts are really touched, really changed. And as a result, we're worshiping our God in truth and submission to Him and humility. Well, these guys won't go in so Pilate comes out and he says, what's the charge? That's the first step in a Roman trial is to ask what the charge is. But these Jewish, Jewish leaders... Weren't prepared for this. They didn't expect a Roman trial. They wanted a Roman rubber stamp. They didn't want a Roman trial. And so they get indignant. But Pilate says, we're going to do it by the book. What is the charge? You ever wondered why um, all of our, our legal terms are in Latin? See, Rome spoke Latin. And the Roman legal system became the foundation for all of our Western legal system. Lex... Romana is the legacy of Rome. It's what made the Roman Empire stable, so powerful. It's their legal system with its procedures and checks and balances, with fairness in the way they governed. It made them great. It was a good system. It was the best system that anybody had come up with. It was the best that man could produce to solve problems. But as this case points out, As good as it was, it wasn't good enough. It, like anything else that this world has to offer, no matter how good, fails. If Jesus had gone into his trial with confidence in the legal system, he'd have been crushed and disillusioned. But he knows better. He knows that it will fail. So Pilate says, what is the charge? Now, John doesn't tell us what the formal charge is. Uh, Luke tells us that uh, um, eventually these priests accused Jesus of forbidding people to pay taxes and claiming to be a king. But at this point, they just act indignant. They say, hey, listen, if this guy was not a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Take our word for it. Quit meddling where you don't belong. There's a a power struggle going here. The Jews want to control. And Pilate wants to control. Pilate has the better cards. So he says, okay. You don't want to play it my way? Take him yourself. Try him according to your law. And he knows perfectly well they can't do that. One of the checks and balances in the system was that for them to execute someone, they had to come to the governor. And he knew they had to come to him. He's just asserting his control of the situation. But here we get our first glimpse of the real heart of this passage. What this passage we're looking at is all about. You see, the Jews are vying for control. The Romans are vying for control. They're manipulating, they're pressuring They're deceiving, all trying to gain control. But it's the word of Jesus who's forgotten in the background that controls the situation. These two groups are playing it the best they know how. These are the, the, the power elites of their society, the power brokers, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish priests were the leaders of their society. And here was Pilate, the Roman governor, the top official in the land. And they knew how to play the game. And they're doing their best to manipulate and control. But the scripture says all that was allowed to happen in order that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke concerning the way he was about to die. All this was going on so that Jesus' word would be fulfilled. Man proposes. God disposes. Now, people think they're in control. Kings and presidents... Generals and bishops, bosses, bureaucrats, doctors, judges, you and I, we think we can control, but we cannot. God is in control and he will have his word fulfilled. You can count on that. And this is the heart of the passage. This is the theme, that God is in control no matter how out of control things look. And this is true in your life too. No matter how out of control things look, God is in control. Let me uh, tell you a story I just read this uh, last week about two men who went to Turkey to share the gospel. This was quite a while ago. It was 1965. They went to this remote part of Turkey, feeling that God had called them there, planning on sharing their faith. As soon as they arrived in this area, they hit the streets, found somebody to share the gospel with. Within three hours, they were in prison they spent the next six weeks in prison suffering from dysentery and parasites eating the prison food they'd been sentenced to be executed and they're sitting there wondering what are we doing here we only had three hours of freedom here and now we're in prison we're going to be executed what's it all for it's a waste we got nothing done they had nothing else to do so they just as they were sitting in the cell they prayed sang to the lord well, they were released after those six weeks. They were actually deported. They weren't executed, fortunately. Last year, 1986, one of these guys was in London. Went to a Turkish part of London. He uh, went into a little cafe to, sh- to share the gospel with whoever might be there. And he heard somebody else sharing the gospel. He waited until they were finished, and he went back to the fellow. And he said, where are you from? And the guy said, well, you wouldn't know it. It's a very remote part of Turkey. And he said, well, try me. And it was the same place he had been to. He said, how did you possibly hear the gospel there? The man said, well, there were two young Americans that came to share Jesus with us. And they were arrested, thrown in jail. And I and 11 other children used to sit under their window and listen to them pray and to sing to their Jesus. And we figured if they could sing to their Jesus at a time like this, we wanted to know him too. And so we started praying. And now all 12 of us are in different parts of the world, sharing our Jesus with other Muslims. God is in control. He will work His will. Verse 33. Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium, summoned Jesus to him and said, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly, I am a king. But for this reason I have been born and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. As I said, John leaves out the formal charge of forbidding taxes and claiming to be king. You see, in the story in Luke before the Sanhedrin. These these issues don't even come up. They're not even mentioned. It just happened that when when they got before Pilate and realized they couldn't get anywhere without a legal Roman charge, they made them up. They invented them on the spot. And they knew them to be lies and half-truths. They knew Jesus did not forbid taxes. They knew he claimed to be a king, but a different kind of king, the Messiah. So Pilate goes in to question the accused. That's the second step In a Roman trial to question the accused and he says literally you are king of the Jews he's incredulous this man does not look like the uh, sulking megalomaniac or the the defiant revolutionary expected to find here was Jesus composed calm polite respectful it doesn't fit for Pilate but Jesus doesn't answer his question Instead, Jesus asked Pilate a question. He says, Are you asking this for yourself? Or because other people told you about me? Do you really want to know for you? Do you really want to know who I am? See, Jesus saw a spark of spiritual interest in Pilate. And he reaches out to Pilate, where Pilate's at. And he says, Do you really care? He wants to open Pilate up and minister to him. But Pilate closes up real quick. He says, Whoa! I'm not a Jew, am I? I don't care about these things. I said, what have you done? He shuts himself off quickly, defensively. He tries to regain control of the interview. In fact, all the way through this passage, we see Pilate doing his absolute best to gain control of what's going on. And he just can't seem to get it under control. So, Jesus, uh, in the midst of his trial reaches out to Pilate. He is more concerned with Pilate's spiritual condition than he is with defending himself. You see, this situation that seems so out of control to everyone else, Jesus knows his Father is in control. And he knows his Father cares. And he knows his Father is going to bring it to the conclusion that they had already agreed upon. And so this frees Jesus to care for those around him. It frees Jesus to keep his priorities straight. It frees Jesus to keep the priority of his kingdom, which is love and truth, kindness. Jesus uh, explains his kingdom to Pilate. He begins by saying what it is not. He says, it is not of this world. It's in this world, but it's not of this world. In other words, Pilate, it's not like any kingdom you're familiar with. It's not like any of the nations around. This kingdom is not concerned with territory. The nations and kingdom of this earth are eminently concerned with territory. They fight wars over little strips of disputed territory, like Iran and Iraq are fighting now. And this kingdom is not concerned with commerce and trade empires. That's what our last two world wars were fought over, was the trade routes. That's what our nations today are primarily focused on trade empires. It says this kingdom is not concerned with power or the vestiges that go along with power, the pomp and the ceremony. Jesus was born in a stable. He never built a palace, never had an army, no uniforms. In fact, he didn't even let his, his followers defend him when he was delivered over to the Jews. This uh, lack of the vestiges of power and influence is, is, is embarrassing to most Christians. As a result, we try to compensate by building big cathedrals, by wearing special clothes, by, uh, by, by boasting in the people, the powerful people and the rich, the influential that associate with us, or glorying in the political power we can muster. But Jesus, the King, was satisfied to associate with the lowly. He gloried in the cross. He seems to be totally disinterested in those things we seem to need to convince ourselves that we're important. Anyway, then Jesus goes on to explain what his kingdom is. In the, in the previous conversation with Pilate, he, uh, Pilate's really not grasping things. He's not understanding where Jesus is coming from or where Jesus is going. But he does latch on. He says, okay, you got a kingdom, so you're a king, right? Jesus says, yes, I'm a king. That's the way way you want to put it. But I came to bear witness to the truth. You see, Jesus doesn't want to lie to him and say, no, I'm not a king. He is a king. He is the king. But not in Pilate's sense of the word. Not a greedy uh, politician who's trying to usurp control, using intrigue and deception and lies and force i 'm not that kind of king i 'm not a king like you think of a king. see the problem is the things of the kingdom don 't fit well into most people 's categories. The kingdom that you are in if you if Jesus is your king your lord that kingdom is virtually incomprehensible to people on the outside. Last Tuesday, I was having breakfast with several of the interns I work with, and each one of them expressed. How frustrated they were over Christmas trying to explain to their family, to their friends, what they were doing. You know, why did they interrupt their careers just to learn how to serve people and to teach the scriptures, to lead Bible studies? Why would they even consider going overseas to tell people about Jesus Christ? That doesn't make sense. I can understand if you're going over to build a big building or to open up trade routes or, uh, you know, start some big development program. That makes sense. That's real. But to go and to share Jesus Christ with individuals, to demonstrate His love to them one person at a time, what a waste. It doesn't make sense. And I'm sure you've experienced some of the same frustration as you try to explain your commitment to Jesus, to your family, and to your friends. Why you commit so much of your time and energy, so much of your personal wealth and possessions to seeing people in the kingdom built up, encouraged, and, and the kingdom expand, new people brought in. Now, why do you do that? Most people just figure we are uh, religious types. We're fanatics. We're off on this tangent. Someday, we'll come back to reality. Get back to the things that are important, like uh, wealth and fame, and pleasure. Someday, we'll come back to reality. I'm sure Jesus felt the same frustration as he's dealing with Pilate. Pilate just doesn't understand. But Jesus goes ahead and explains it to him. He explains it simply, kindly, and not rudely or belligerently or defensively. He just explains. And he says, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world. Notice he says both, because both are true of Jesus. He was born, but he existed before that with the Father. He came into the world, and he came to bring the truth, to bear witness to the truth. His kingdom is based on truth. Responding to the truth, facing the truth about ourselves and about each other, uh, sharing the truth with others. These are the priorities of His kingdom. These are His priorities. And He is our King. So these are our priorities. These are are what the kingdom we're in is all about. And then Jesus says and anyone who is really interested in the truth will listen to me. Pilate's response to this is, what is truth? He turns and he walks away. Pilate uh, ducked into the cynicism of his age. You see, Rome looked to Greece for their philosophy. And Greek philosophy by this time had already run its course. The early philosophers, uh, Socrates, Plato, they really sought truth. They were trying to figure out what truth really is. Where is absolute truth? In fact, Plato deduced that there must be absolute truth. There must be an ideal. There must be the God. But then he despaired of ever knowing Him. So later philosophers, who said, if we can't know the truth, why even look for it? And they begin to to treat the whole enterprise of searching for truth as a waste of time. Other philosophies begin to develop. The Stoics who looked at life and said, Life is hard, and wanting it to be any different just makes it harder. So just grin and bear it. Or the Epicureans who say, This is all there is, so eat and drink and be merry. If it feels good, do it. Or the mystery religions that begin to proliferate, who were looking for an altogether different kind of truth. An irrational truth, a non rational truth, based on, on something different. If this sounds familiar, it should. Because our culture about two or three hundred years ago rediscovered its group its group its Greek excuse me philosophical roots. And Greek philosophy has again rerun its course in our culture. Again, today, people despair of knowing absolute truth. In fact, we've even come so far as to deny that it exists. We've embraced the Hegelian notion that truth is relative to who you are, where you are, and when you get there. The only index we have for truth is if it feels right. If it feels right, then it's true for me. And if it feels right for you, then that's true for you. And we we'd really have lost sight of any absolute, any absolute truth. And so, if you were to come and talk to someone in our culture, one of our campuses, about truth, they'd say, What is truth? And walk away. The same dodge that Pilate took is the same dodge most people today take. And what are they dodging? What are they getting away from? They're getting away from the truth, from the source of truth, from Jesus Christ. You see, Plato was right. There is the ideal, there is the God but he can be known, not through some abstract philosophical uh, speculation, but by coming to the one who came into the world to make him known and letting Jesus Christ reveal his Father, letting him open you up to the truth little by little as you walk with him. Well, Pilate uh, made his decision Truth was too costly. And realize truth is costly. It shows us things about ourselves that we don't want to see. It exposes things in our lifestyle. we don't want to give up. Pilate made his decision and he turned and he walked away from his salvation. It might have cost him his job or his wealth or his lifestyle. Don't follow his example whatever sinful attitude or behavior that you're trying to insulate from the truth is not worth going through this life without truth. It's not worth going through without real life in this world and the next. Well, Pilate walked out and he declares Jesus innocent. He says, I cannot find one thing wrong with this man. Everybody already knew that. The... uh, The priests who brought him, they made up the false charges in the first place. So they knew they were lies. Even Judas, before he hung himself, said, I have shed innocent blood. Everyone involved with the situation knew that Jesus was innocent, that he was blameless, that he was without blemish, as the Passover lamb had to be. Pilate declares Jesus not guilty, and the Roman trial is over. Now the rest of the story is Pilate doing his best to let Jesus go. He really wants to, but he can't. Verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Therefore they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. See, Pilate wanted to do what was right, but he also wanted to do what was politically expedient. And he hatched what he must have thought was a brilliant plan. Okay, I'll release this Jesus because I always there's apparently there's a tradition that every Passover he would release one prisoner. He says then if I release Jesus, then it'll save face for the religious rulers because it won't look like I just dismissed the trial. People will think I'm wonderful because I'm letting this prisoner go. I don't have to release. A real criminal. So I thought this is a great plan. I get to do what's right and I get something back for it as well. So he goes out and proposes this to the people and they don't play along. They begin to shout, Crucify! Crucify! They say, we want Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. And Luke, he tells us he was a murderer, a revolutionary. He was a terrorist. And they said, we want him. Instead of Jesus, so Pilate decides to try a new tack. He still is trying to release Jesus, but he's going to do it a different way. Verse one of chapter nineteen. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. That is, he beat him, had him beaten with a whip that had little pieces of bone and metal embedded in it, and it would tear into the skin and into the meat on on the person being whipped's back. It uh, usually rendered the person unconscious. Sometimes it killed them. But he had Jesus beaten. And then he let the soldiers abuse him. Verse 2. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple rope, and they be, a robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him blows in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify, him, for I find no guilt in him. See, so what he did is he had Jesus beaten and abused. And then he... Brought him out, his face swollen, covered with blood from the thorns. Stooped from the beating to his back, covered with his tattered robe. And he showed them to all the Jews and he said, look at him. Let him go. He's such a pitiful sight. You know, he's had enough. Let's call it off now. But their hatred was not vulnerable to pity. So they started shouting, crucify, crucify. And Pilate gets totally disgusted, totally frustrated. He says, "You take him and crucify him. I want nothing to do with this. Let me out of this." He can't believe their hardness of heart, their lack of pity. But what they say, what what they say to him next, really scares him. Verse seven: The Jews answered him, "We have a law, and by that law he had to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God." And Pilate therefore heard this statement. He was the more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. You've got to understand that for a Roman, Son of God means something entirely different. You see, in Roman religion, there had been many times in history when one of the gods had come and consorted with a man or a woman and produced an offspring. That offspring was a powerful being like Hercules or Aeneas. And that offspring had the favor and the protection of its parent God. And Pilate's thinking, oh no, I've got one of these. And I've already had him beaten. I'm in trouble. And so he runs back in and he says, where are you from? He wants to know, what's going on here? Are you one of these guys? Jesus doesn't say a word. See, Jesus knows that Pilate's confused. Pilate's frantic. Pilate has already closed the door to any help. The door slammed when Pilate responded to Jesus by closing his heart and his mind to the truth. So Pilate panics. He gets frantic. He tries to bluster and threaten Jesus. In verse 10 he says, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus calmly Gently, kindly, corrects him. He says, Pilate, you're not in control. You think you are, but you're not. Verse 11, Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. He says, Pilate, you're just a puppet. Your kingdom has no authority, no power that's not given from mine, not given from my Father. Jesus is actually comforting this man, I believe. He sees how confused, how frantic Pilate is. And here's Jesus, stooped, bloody, bruised, trying to comfort this Roman governor in his finery and. and And his stateliness. Jesus reaching out to him. He knows again that his father is in control of the situation. And this frees him to really love Pilate. Jesus is in control. And his focus is this hurting man. And he says, Pilate, your sin is great. But greater still is the sin of of, he who who handed me over to you. He says, Pilate, you're acting out of fear and out of ignorance, and that's really no excuse. But Caiaphas, the high priest, has even less excuse. He's supposed to be a man of God. He knows the Scriptures. He knows the truth. But because of his hatred and his self-righteousness, he's covered up the truth. God, help us if we In our society, who know the truth, cover it up with self-righteousness and religiosity. Well, let's read on. Verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar." When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. That's a little before noon. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. They therefore cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Pilate has a choice as he sits on the judgment seat. A choice is either to make a total travesty out of Roman justice and to, to crucify a man he knows to be innocent, or on the other hand, to be accused of sedition an accusation that his already shaky political career probably couldn't take. Apparently, he had been reported to the emperor at least once already. And uh, Tiberius, who was emperor at the time, was known to be very suspicious, even to the point of paranoia. So Pilate makes his choice. He chooses his career. He caves in. He says, what is truth anyway? Verse 16, So he delivered him to them... To be crucified. Do you understand what's what's going on here? In this whole passage. Who is in control? Obviously, the Jews aren't. They came in control, thinking they were in control, wanting to get a rubber stamp for their lynching, and things quickly got out of their control. They ended up perjuring themselves, making up lies, bearing false witness, and by the end of the trial. They were swearing allegiance to a hated Roman emperor. They hated Rome. They hated the fact that they had a had a Caesar over them. But by the end, they are saying, "We have no king but Caesar." Sin is a cruel master, always exacting more from its slaves. And Pilate, he's uh, obviously not in control. Poor Pilate, he's trying. But he too chooses sin. He too is a puppet of sin. Without the strength that only God can supply, even though he knows what is right, he cannot do it. But Jesus, he's in perfect control. In the midst of a situation which seems totally out of control. A situation where he's already been physically abused, where he's been emotionally abused where his body is about to be destroyed, he knows the outcome of this trial. He knows he's going to die. He has every right to look out for himself, to withdraw within himself, to protect himself, to be angry, to be hateful. But in the midst of all this, his focus is on loving Pilate, on reaching out to him. Because Jesus knows that his father is in control. And this frees him to keep his priorities straight, to put the things of his kingdom first. Pilate didn't know how truly he spoke when he said, behold the man. This is a real man. The same confidence is ours, that God is in control. No matter how out of control things seem in our lives, no matter how confusing it gets, God is in control. Our lives are full of apparent calamities. Big ones like these two guys getting thrown in jail in Turkey. And little ones like not being able to find your daughter's shoe before Sunday school and going crazy. Or having a, a, a deal at work fall through. Getting in an automobile accident. Our life is full of little apparent calamities. Let me tell you a story about a guy by the name of Noel. He uh, used to be uh, a volunteer young life worker up in uh, Spokane. This was about Christmas several years ago. Got a traffic ticket. Bummer. They had to go to court, and he didn't have any money. So I told the judge, I'm sorry, I don't have the money to pay for this. The judge says, okay. Well, then you have to do community service. Okay. <laughs> Got to do community service. The judge said, what can you do? He said, I don't know. I'm a, I'm an art major and I, I work with high school students on campuses. He said, great. We need someone to teach art in our reform school, our detention school. Okay. <laughs> You know, this is out of control. He's got his life to live. He's got school. He's got work. He's got his ministry. And now he's got to go spend time at this reform school teaching art to a bunch of kids who don't care about art. These are criminals. Out of control. Well, something else had just happened. Young man, only 15 years old. Apparently, was a fairly good kid. Had a lot of testimonials at his trial. But this boy at the urging of some friends tried to snatch a purse and he grabbed the purse and the woman who was holding on to it fell and hit her head and died and the boy's life crumbled Well, he arrived at that detention center the night before the next day Noel got there and that boy was in his art class Noel had a chance to meet him and to share the love of Christ with him the truth about who Jesus Christ was. And the boy received Christ into his life. And together, they rebuilt that destroyed life. God's in control. Even of a stupid little traffic ticket. Even of your checkbook being empty. My wife tells me about a, a, a cancer patient she took care of a couple months ago. This woman's body was disintegrating. And she was in pain. But she concerned herself with caring for her family, with loving those who were there to care for her. She kept the priorities of the kingdom in view. See, we should look at life like this. When apparent calamities come, we remind ourselves God's in control and he's got a good plan and that plan involves the advance of his kingdom. And that means there must be someone here for me to love someone here for me to share the truth with. And that's the important thing in this situation. Not getting out of it, but loving somebody in the midst of it. Sharing the truth in the midst of it. That's what His kingdom is all about. You know, what's out of control in your life? Is your family life, your home life in chaos? God is in control. Remember that. And put your focus on loving your husband or your wife or your child or your parents, whatever the situation is. And being honest with them and speaking the truth. And God will bring it about to the end that He's got in mind. And it's a good end. Things uh, too much at work, God's in control. You put your focus on loving the people that you work for and the people you work with. God's in control of apparent calamities. Is is there a relationship that's out of control? Is there a a responsibility that's terrorizing you? Remember, God is in control and He's got a good plan for it. Now you remember that there's got to be someone here for me to love, to share the truth with. So we go through life, no matter how big or how small the calamity is, and remember that. We seek first His kingdom. And He takes care of the rest. Well, we have the opportunity this morning to share the Lord's Supper, communion, together. And as we do, I'd like to uh, encourage you that we not allow this to become an empty ritual. Just something we go through the motions of. If you're new here, or if you're just visiting, please, if, if Jesus is your King, feel free to join in. We're all part of the same body. But let's not let it just become an activity we go through. Let's take the time as we as we take the bread which is to remind us of Christ's body which is broken for us. Let's remember how he conducted himself even as his body was being broken. The integrity. The self-control. The love. And let's worship him for it. But then let's also confess that we're not like that. Let's confess the times when we fall under the pressure, under the apparent calamities. And let's ask Him to make us like Himself. He's anxious to do it, and He can do it. So as we take the bread, just worship Him, think through these things, confess your sins, and remember His goodness.